Well, men, it's good to have this opportunity again together when we can forget about the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in, those circumstances that have that tendency to pull us down into the weeds and obscure our vision of the bigger picture of what God is doing in our lives. So one of the most helpful things to do during these kinds of times is to study doctrine, especially the doctrine of salvation, because if there's anything that helps us transcend our particular struggles and trials. It's looking at the plan of redemption. And God has not left us without knowledge, without revelation on this particular issue. In his word, he gives us the portrait, the the scope of redemption that takes us all the way back from eternity past as God planned redemption through history as Christ accomplishes redemption through his atoning work on the cross and the Holy Spirit begins to apply redemption in our lives individually and then we see it in eternity future as God redeems us ultimately uh, to his glory for our good to enjoy fellowship with him forever. And it's that view that helps us put everything else in perspective and to see that our trials are but a momentary light affliction in comparison with the glories that are waiting for us. So in light of that, we want to continue our study of the, this, uh, the, the doctrine of salvation, the study that we have entitled The Mercies of God, a study of the components of our salvation. And we want to continue with the third and final part of our mini-series on the doctrine of sanctification. We've come a long way in our study and it's this one in particular, this doctrine of salvation, or of sanctification, this component of salvation that requires some, some more in-depth study. And so we've done that. The first part of this three-part series, we defined sanctification in general, and we focused primarily on the doctrine of definitive sanctification. It's an aspect of sanctification that is often forgotten or ignored. It is that instantaneous act of God whereby he frees us from the dominion of sin and enables us at that moment of conversion to begin striving after his holiness. We then, in part two, focused on the phase that we call progressive sanctification, We looked at how God enables us to work as he works in and through us to mortify the sinful tendencies that are still remaining in our lives and to cultivate or vivify Christ-like virtue. So now in in part three, uh, what we want to do is look at some common errors made in the understanding of sanctification. And as we do that, I, I just want to emphasize this once again, as I have mentioned several times already, that what you believe about sanctification will have a a significant impact on how you understand and live the Christian life. This doctrine of sanctification is, is what takes us from the moment of our conversion all the way to our death. And so it is a significant element of, of our lives. And, and what we believe about this period of our lives, the Christian life, will have an impact on how we live it out. So we can look at it this way and say that the desire to be holy, the desire that all genuine believers have, can be very intense and and must be very intense, but it can be so intense that it can lead one to try 
incorrect means to achieve holiness in order to quicken the process. So if we don't have a proper understanding of sanctification, we'll reach for those means that are outside of Scripture, not prescribed by God's Word, in an attempt to circumvent the process that God has ordained and to arrive at the end quicker than what He has determined. The desire to be holy in some Christians can even be weak, and it can lead to errant views, to incorrect views about the purpose of redemption itself. And we'll talk about some of that in our session this evening. And then the desire to be holy can also be misdirected, leading believers to look to unbiblical authorities, to faulty authorities, in an effort to to find instruction, keys, to find that silver bullet that will give them what they need to achieve holiness in their lives. These are just a, 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 a selective list of, of ways that believers can can misunderstand the nature of the Christian life and get onto the wrong track. So we want to cover those this evening. And, and as we do, I'm, I'm sure that you will at least perhaps recognize some of these characteristics may exist now in your life. They may have existed at some point previous uh, to today, or you certainly know of people who have been characterized by these false understandings of the doctrine of sanctification. Just by way of review, also, as we uh, covered in previous sessions, when we talk about sanctification, as I already mentioned, we, we talk about these three phases, these three stages, which are important to keep in mind as we move forward. The, the biblical stages of sanctification are, number one, definitive sanctification, the, the, that instantaneous moment at regeneration, that instantaneous work of God, whereby he frees us from the dominion of sin, freeing us now to be a slave to righteousness. Then we looked secondly at progressive sanctification, this second stage that marks the entirety of the Christian life here on earth that involves our striving after holiness and our putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And then as well, we can talk, as as the Bible does, about perfective sanctification, that final instantaneous act at the moment of our death, at the moment of our glorification, when once and for all, the presence of sin in our lives is done away with. Now, as we think of progressive sanctification in particular, let's also remember how we defined it as as encompassing two particular elements. And both of these need to be present for there to be a balanced approach to the pursuit of holiness. The the nature of sanctification itself involves separation and consecration, whether that's found in Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, in in terms of sanctifying vessels for the use in in temple worship and how those vessels were taken from the mundane and consecrated to the special usage, And it involves moral sanctification as well, separation from sin and consecration to Christ-likeness. And so last time we talked about the, the disciplines of mortification, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, and vivification. That, that is our activity, our discipline, our effort to cultivate Christ-like virtue in place of those deeds of the flesh. So with that in mind, you can Think of the Christian life in in terms of this pattern. If we would look at this this chart, 
You, you can see the, the, the level of the non-Christian and slavery to sin is, is mired in, in immorality and in, 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 is, is mired in the, this slavery to sin, whether that is in self-service, service to other gods, and so on and so forth. Then comes conversion. Then comes regeneration. And at that moment, there is a definitive kind of sanctification that takes place as God frees us from the dominion of sin. That leads to the Christian life, what we call this growth in holiness. It's a life that is filled with a progressively increasing or progressively intensifying pursuit and experience of holiness. It is not the achievement of perfection, But it's the ups and downs of life as we grow, as we learn, we develop, much like a a body develops organically. We develop in our spiritual lives as we mortify sin and vivify virtue. And then comes death, which catapults us immediately into glory to be with Christ. And it is there as we behold Jesus Christ face to face that we then experience perfect holiness, that perfect holiness as we see Christ for who He is, and our lives are forever changed, never to again experience any taint of sin. I like how Herman Bavinck described this progressive act of sanctification, this lifelong striving after holiness, this growth in holiness, as he said this, quote, Those who are born of God increasingly become the children of God and bear His image and likeness because, in principle, they already are His children. The rule of organic life applies to them. Become what you are. Become what you are. And so, as you look at this slide of the picture of the Christian life, you see that middle section of progressive sanctification. The Christian life is this process of increasingly becoming who we already are in our union with Jesus Christ. But as I mentioned, this understanding is not, is, is not held by all proponents of of Christianity. It's not held by all those who would claim to strive after holiness. In fact, in the the Christian church today, there are many various and many different views of sanctification. And so for us to properly understand what sanctification is, it is helpful to consider the errant views of sanctification that are out there. And that's what I want to do during this session. So as we do that, I want to look at some key terms and definitions that relate to these errant forms of sanctification. And there's going to be four terms that we will look at during our study this evening. First of all, we'll look at the term entire sanctification. Entire sanctification, that's a term that is used in certain circles to describe a particular period of the Christian life here on earth. It's called entire sanctification. There's also the terminology of higher life theology, higher life theology. That particular movement has had a great impact on wide swaths of evangelical Christianity. We're going to look at the term carnal Christian, carnal Christian. And then fourth, fourthly, we'll look at the, the terminology free grace theology, free grace theology. As I said, you may not have heard of these 
before per se, but I'm pretty sure that these, these ideas that are communicated by these terms have impacted you in some way. You know of people who adhere to these, these views, and certainly you've probably picked up books. Some, some very famous books have been written from these perspectives. So let's look at each one of them and consider them carefully. Let's look first of all at the concept of entire sanctification entire sanctification. Now, it's important to note at the outset that this is not synonymous with the concept of perfective sanctification. Remember, perfective sanctification or perfect sanctification is that instantaneous act that happens at the moment of death as we are glorified, as we are ushered into the presence, the very presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's perfective or perfect sanctification. And that is something that we all yearn for in the future at our deaths. But entire sanctification is not perfective sanctification. It's not referring to that instantaneous act that happens at death. Instead, it's referring to an instantaneous act of sanctification, which can occur, not necessarily, but it can occur. It should occur, according to proponents. It should occur at some point during the Christian life. So at some point during our lives here on earth, as as we walk uh, this life as followers of Jesus Christ, at some time, at some point, proponents of this view of entire sanctification would say you need to experience this instantaneous act of sanctification. Now, what does it involve? Well, it does not bring about an absolute kind of perfection, proponents would say, but it does introduce the believer to a relative kind of perfection. Not absolute perfection that we will experience when we are glorified, but a relative kind of perfection in in light of what we can achieve here on, on this earth, in this current life. And this relative perfection will be Evidence particularly in your ability to fulfill the command, not just partly, but wholly, completely fulfill the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Proponents of sanctification would take that text from Matthew 22, 37 to 39, and would say that when you reach the ability to do this perfectly in this life, you have been entirely sanctified. Now, a little bit about the history of this movement. This, is, this view, in, entire sanctification, is sometimes called Wesleyan perfectionism, Wesleyan perfectionism, because it was popularized by the 18th century English evangelist and founder of Methodism, John Wesley. John Wesley. Now today, those who would follow John Wesley's teaching on this with some modification would be those in the Methodist movement, the Church of the Nazarene, and the Salvation Army, and there's others. And they would all hold to various forms of John Wesley's perfectionism. Now let me quote directly from a 1777 publication of one of John John Wesley's works called A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. And this is how he describes 
entire sanctification. He says this, entire sanctification is, quote, nothing higher and nothing lower than this. The pure love of God and man, the loving God with all our heart and soul and our neighbor as ourselves. It is love governing the heart and life, running through our tempers, words, and actions. Pure love reigning alone in the heart and life is the whole of scriptural perfection. End quote. And then he also goes on to say that a Christian is so far perfect as not to commit sin when he is in this stage of entire sanctification. Now that was Jonathan uh, or John Wesley's view and that view has been propagated since John Wesley's time and even theologians who are in the Wesleyan tradition today would adhere to much the same idea. One of them is Melvin Dieter who said this, entire sanctification is, quote, a personal, definitive work of God's sanctifying grace by which the war within oneself might cease and the heart be fully released from rebellion into wholehearted love for God and others. It is a total death to sin and an entire renewal to the image of God, end quote. Now, what Dieter is saying there is is important to note. He's saying that with this stage or with this idea of entire sanctification, with this second work of grace, they would call it a second work of grace that imitates in many ways the first work of grace, which is conversion. The second work of grace releases the heart fully, not, not only from sin's dominion, but even from sin's presence. It leads to the the elimination. It it leads to the removal, the entire removal of the flesh from the Christian so that he can live a life without sin. Now, as I said, Wesley's views have, have been qualified by his followers over the centuries, over the decades, but the following characteristics of this view of sanctification are generally observed. They would believe that this entire sanctification... This perfection is an instantaneous act occurring sometime between justification and glorification. Sometime between the moment of conversion and the moment of death. Some point in in the Christian life. They would also say that it is instituted by a kind of crisis moment similar to the one in which justification occurred. Thirdly, they would say that this entire sanctification eradicates the sinful flesh. In fact, as Wesley stated, he said, all inward sin is taken away. Moreover, they would say that although this act of God sanctifies the believer entirely and places him on a new level of perfection, it's still a, a, a quantifiable or a qualification uh, that, that must be made that this perfection still experiences growth. So there is still growth that will occur after the moment of entire sanctification, but it's not a a growth that comes as a result of mortifying sin and and so on. It's, It's just one of growing in perfection quantitatively. And finally, those who would hold to this view would still... Uh, would still recognize that this perfection can be undone by a lapse into disobedience. But then, at some point later, you could again achieve this entire sanctification and again experience 
perfection in this life. So if we look at this in, in terms of this diagram, this is how the Christian life is viewed according to Wesleyan perfectionism. Again, you see the non-Christian mired in, in sinfulness, a slave to sin. A first crisis comes, and this is the first work of grace wherein God converts the sinner. That life may then change somewhat. There may be new efforts to pursue Christ-likeness, but that's not perfection. It's really just the first stage of the Christian life. What is important is the second crisis that comes. It is the second work of grace, this second crisis in the Christian life, which creates this entire sanctification and catapults the Christian, so to speak, elevates him to a whole new phase of existence wherein he enjoys sinlessness, a kind of perfection in this life, even one that grows, and he will experience that life, hopefully to his death, where he will then experience glorification and absolute perfection. Now, what is notable here, as as I've already mentioned, is even though the Christian could attain this level of perfection, it does not prevent possible lapses back into imperfection, back into disobedience. And so this life of perfection can be interrupted by stages and maybe many years of lapses back into a past carnal state and then another crisis, another work of entire sanctification to bring him back up to the level of perfection. Proponents believe that since the Bible demands perfection of believers, it means that perfection must be attainable by them in this life. And they would point to texts like Matthew 5, 48, where we read that we are to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. Or 1 John 3, verse 9, which says that no one who is born of God practices sin. And he cannot sin because he's born of God. And 1 John 5 verse 18 says that we know that no one who is born of God sins. It even quotes 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 23 where Paul prays that God would sanctify those Thessalonian believers entirely and that they would be in spirit and soul and body complete without blame. Hence, Proponents would argue that it is possible to instantaneously eradicate the presence of sin. And this, is, this comes about by God's gracious and decisive removal of the flesh, of the propensity to sin from the believer. Now, the problems with entire sanctification are significant. And it's important to note these, we don't have time to to provide a a full-orbed response to Wesleyan perfectionism, but let me highlight just a few of these very quickly. Number one, Wesleyan perfectionism, or the view of entire sanctification, redefines sin in, in, in a dramatic way. And you've probably picked up on that already. It redefines sin in this way. It, it, it defines sin as a voluntary transgression of a known law, a voluntary transgression of a known law. In other words, Wesleyan perfectionists would say that the sanctified Christian, the perfect Christian, can still commit sin unwillingly. He just doesn't know about it. Or he may transgress God's laws, but he just may be ignorant that they exist. 
And so sin, when they talk about perfection and sinlessness, is radically redefined and rather defining it as anything which is contrary to the character and purposes of God. They redefine it to deal exclusively in this instant instance with a voluntary, willful, conscious transgression. Now, secondly, not only do they redefine sin, but they radically redefine perfection. And they make perfection relative. In fact, they can even talk about it as being an imperfect perfection. It is not like the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ, or even the sinless perfection that believers will experience in eternity future. They acknowledge that and say, no, the kind of perfection we're talking about in this life is, is limited. It's, it's relative. Well, such relative or such limited perfection is no perfection at all, especially if it allows for lapses back into disobedience. What then about all the proof texts? What then, for example, about Matthew 5, 48, be holy as your heavenly father is holy. And and what about 1 John 3, verse 9 and 1 John 5, verse 18 and 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23? Well, let me just say this. And again, we don't have time to go into this deeply, but these texts are misinterpreted and taken out of context in an effort to buttress the position of entire sanctification. If we look at Matthew 4, verse 48, we must read it in light of what Jesus says just a a few sentences later when he teaches the disciples about how to pray. And one of the key elements of their prayers is to ask for forgiveness. Moreover, when we look at 1 John 3, verse 9, or 1 John 5, verse 18, we must read them in light of 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, where John says that if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourselves. You deceive yourselves. And and moreover, he goes on, John does, to say that we must confess our sins, and that's in the present tense. That's a practice, and by doing so, God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then as well, in response to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, indeed, Paul does pray for entire sanctification in spirit, soul, and body, but he connects it explicitly to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible never describes the heroes of the faith, the the, the most esteemed Men and women of faith never describes these heroes in this life as being perfect. In fact, we can take the greatest heroes of the scriptures, whether that be Abraham or David or the apostle Paul, and we all, we we find with all of them that scripture reveals their transgressions. Scripture describes their confessions and, and scripture describes their strivings, their continual strivings after something better. You see, Wesleyan perfectionism distorts the Christian life by instructing the Christian to seek this crisis moment, this second work of grace, when God will eradicate the sinful flesh from him And he will live a a life essentially different than he lives now. And there is no such prescription given in Scripture. Now, I want to turn to a second errant view of sanctification, and that's what's found under the, the concept of what's called higher life theology. Higher life theology. 
This was a movement, the higher life theology movement was popularized in the late 1800s and the early 1900s by a series of Christian conferences that were held in the town of Keswick in Northwest England. It advocated a form of Christian perfectionism that was similar to that of Wesley, but with significant alterations. Now, the essence of this movement, the essence of higher life theology, is summarized very concisely by their motto. And perhaps you've heard it. Let go and let God. Let go and let God. This motto is it's, it's comprised of two essential elements, two pillars. The first one is this. You must let go. The believer must stop striving. The believer must abandon his efforts at sanctification. He must give up his, his efforts, his disciplines to live the Christian life. And he must put himself on the altar. He must be still and he must surrender his life to God. The second pillar is to let God. In other words, the believer must get out of the way. He must give God the permission to sanctify him and bring this instant victory over sin. And proponents of this view would say that to the degree that you surrender, the degree that you stop striving, the degree that you become passive, and to the degree that you allow God to work, that you give him the permission to sanctify you, that's the degree to which you can experience sinless perfection in this life. Like Wesleyan perfectionism, higher life theology defines sin and perfection in the same relative terms. Like Wesleyan perfectionism, higher life theology asserts that this act of sanctification occurs in the believer's life at a moment of crisis and that it's instantaneous in nature. But what is different from Wesleyan perfectionism is this. Higher life theology argues that God does not eradicate the sinful flesh at that moment. Instead, this entire sanctification, this elevation to a level of relative perfection, is achieved when the believer gives God the permission to counteract the flesh in his life. In other words, it's not really about anything that changes in the believer's nature or anything that changes even in his practice other than his giving up of his efforts, his becoming still and quiet, his offering of himself as a sacrifice, giving it over to God and allowing God, giving God the permission then to do this work of sanctification in the believer's life. And when you surrender your life on the altar, you essentially, to put it in the parlance of some, you let Jesus take the wheel. And as you let Jesus take the wheel, he brings the victory. So according to higher life theology, you could look at the Christian life this way. And again, I I alert your attention to the screen here. You have the life of the non-Christian mired in sin, enslaved to sin, A first crisis happens. That's the crisis of conversion. Now, that crisis may introduce a a, a period of time that would be called Christian striving. It's not really true sanctification in any true sense. It's when the Christian tries to become holy on his own and, and realizes that he can achieve only incremental little steps, and it's not true victorious living. 
Then, at some point, another crisis comes. And it's at that crisis when the believer says, Okay, God, I give up. I give up. You take the wheel. You sanctify me. You do it. I believe you can. And it's at that moment that the believer is elevated to a a level of Christian victory or Christian perfection, whereby willful sin is no longer present. And then, of course, that can continue to the moment of death when the believer is brought into, into final glory. But what is also notable about this, as was the case with Wesleyan perfectionism, is that there are There is room here within this level of Christian victory for lapses back into disobedience and sin. And in fact, among those who profess higher life theology, these lapses obviously are many. As the professing believer seeks this moment of release of passivity to be, to, to be exalted and elevated to this level of Christian victory only to find out it hasn't dealt with the problem and he falls back into sin. He begins searching for a new crisis, a new moment when he can let go and let God put his life on the altar and have God take it and, and use it and, and sanctify it for his glory and these lapses continue for the rest of the believer's life. You see, higher life theology is utterly opposed, dramatically opposed to the doctrine of, of progressive sanctification that we, that we spoke of last session. It is diametrically opposed to the process of active mortification and active vivification of Christian, of Christ-like virtue. In fact, higher life theology says this is the problem. The more you attempt to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, even if you claim God's help, the the more that you do that, the more that you pursue holiness uh, using discipline and, and this active effort, the more you will circumvent sanctification in the end. One proponent said this, quote, a victory gained by a gradual conquest over evil, getting one sin after another out of our life is counterfeit victory, end quote. That is a direct attack on the doctrine of progressive sanctification, on the pursuit of holiness through the work of mortification and vivification using the strength and grace and resources that God provides. As higher life theology teaches, the believer must be passive. He must, by faith, allow God to take over through surrender and consecration. Now, that leads us to this third category here, the carnal Christian. What is the carnal Christian and what does this have to do with sanctification? Well, for both of these views, whether Wesleyan perfectionism or higher life theology, when they reject the doctrine of progressive sanctification... They must create a category to describe the Christian in his life prior to the moment of this perfection, prior to the moment of this instantaneous act when they're elevated to entire sanctification. And this category that they create is that of the carnal Christian, the Christian who they would describe as, who they would describe as unsanctified or unperfected in this life. That's the carnal Christian. 
This in turn leads to establish three fundamental categories of humanity. The first would be this, the the unsaved man. That's the, the natural man. The man who is enslaved to sin. The second category is the saved man, but the unsanctified one. He's called the carnal Christian. He's saved. His sins are forgiven. He's been, he has been redeemed, but he's carnal. And then the third fundamental category is that of the saved and sanctified Christian, or in their terms, the spiritual Christian, defined by some as the true disciple. And, and this this categorization of humanity is often ex- expressed or described in, in terms of this picture that is on the screen where you have the picture of the natural man where the self is on the throne of the one's life represented by that circle. The throne is in the middle of the circle. Self is on the throne and Christ is outside of the circle. That's the natural man. Christ is not a part of his life. But then you have the second category. You have the category of the carnal Christian. Here, self remains on the throne, but Christ is now in the circle. He's now somehow a part of that Christian's life, even though the Christian continues to, to, uh, to be on the throne. And then you have the third category, the spiritual Christian. That's when finally self is no longer on the throne, but Christ is on the throne. Now, that understanding of Christianity permeates, permeates many, many churches today. And it is detrimental and damaging. It is destructive to churches. And more specifically, it is destructive to the pursuit of true holiness. Now, if you want to look for proof for their dichotomy among Christians, between spiritual Christians and, and carnal Christians, proponents would look to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to 3, where Paul addresses the Corinthians and says that he wants to address them as spiritual men, but has to address them as men of flesh, as infants in Christ. He wants to give them solid food, but has to give them milk to drink because they're not ready for meat. Now, when, when proponents of higher life theology or Wesleyan perfectionism see that, they see, see that is the evidence for the carnal Christian. But again, they don't read in context and they don't consider the fact that Paul called these immature believers saints back in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. And he described them as sanctified in the definitive sense, freed from the power of sin in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2 and 6 verse 11. Those realities are opposed to this concept of the carnal Christian where self and sin is still on the throne. No, not at all. Paul Paul does not create this category of the carnal Christian. Now, there's a fourth set of a fourth concept that we have to look at and it's the concept of free grace theology. Now, by definition, grace is always free. Grace is is always free. We acknowledge that. But this movement claims this title of free grace theology to emphasize its radical opposition to two things. So free grace theology claims that title, freedom, free grace, for these two reasons. First of all, it's opposition to the idea that repentance is a part of conversion. Free grace theology rejects the idea of repentance as being 
essential and inherent to conversion. And secondly, free grace theology takes this this nomenclature because it rejects the idea that there will necessarily be growth in holiness after conversion. It rejects the idea of the necessity of progressive sanctification. It rejects the idea that the believer will naturally, as a result of his new nature, begin to produce fruit as a result of the new life that God has created. Now, free grace theology can be traced, really, or at least in in its popularized sense, it can be traced to several professors at Dallas Theological Seminary who who began to popularize this view on mass scale in the the mid-20th centuries. And then in that time, they, they began to teach and emphasize that to be saved, one must believe that Jesus is a savior, but not necessarily acknowledge that he is Lord. Now, whereas we define faith, the biblical concept of faith, as including those three ingredients, if you go back to our session on faith several months ago, we define faith as including notitia, which refers to intellectual awareness of facts, a census, which refers to an intellectual affirmation of those facts, and fiducia, which refers to a full-fledged trust in those facts, free grace theology rejects the need for fiducia. Free grace theology says fiducia is not necessary in conversion. It acknowledges that the life of a person who is truly saved may never even change at all after conversion. And they would even suggest that a saved person, a person who has truly experienced the forgiveness of sins, may even stop believing sometime later on in life and even become an atheist. And that person is still genuinely saved. They would say, we are saved by faith. We agree with them there. They would say, we are not saved by faith plus works. And we would agree with them there. But then they go on to say, neither are we saved by a faith that works. And that is the area of divergence. Consider what one source for this free grace theology uh, affirms in their definition of faith. This is what that organization states. Faith in Christ is intellectual assent. Stripped of its pejorative connotation, intellectual assent is a good definition of what faith is. For example, do you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? If you do, then you know what faith is from a biblical perspective. There is no commitment, no decision of the will, no turning from sins, and no works that are part of faith in Christ. If you are convinced or persuaded that what he promised is true, then you believe in him. Faith is passive. It is simply taking Jesus at his word, end quote. Well, think of it this way. In the same, is it true that in the same way you believe in Jesus is the same way you believe that George Washington was the first president of the United States? Free grace theology would say, yes, it's the same. And by doing so, you are experiencing new life in Christ. You are experiencing the forgiveness of sins, redemption unto life. And we would say, no, 
That faith, that regeneration, that new life, the new creation that God creates is far more transformative in nature than the simple assent to the fact that George Washington was the first president of the United States. According to free grace theology, this is how the Christian life then work, then looks. Again, I alert your attention to the screen. N- the non-Christian, again, still mired in sin, a slave to sin. At some point, he, he accepts Christ as Savior, but he continues to be mired in sin. But he is a Christian now, but is called a carnal Christian. He sins in the same way, with the same passion, as he did before he accepted Christ as Savior. But then at some moment later, and it's not necessary even, it's just if he desires, he can accept Christ as Lord. This is optional. And if he does, then a process of spiritual growth begins. And that process we could call the process of the spiritual Christian. And that continues then until death, and then death brings about complete perfection in glory. But again, as you look at that diagram, you you see the problem there with the carnal Christian living in his sin as ever, and you deal with the the optional nature of sanctification and the, the reality, according to free grace theology proponents, that one who can accept Christ as Savior, can have the kind of faith that then later on decides to reject Christ and even blaspheme Him. That is not biblical faith, and that will not lead to a biblical understanding of the Christian life. Now, in light of that, in the remaining time that we have, I want to summarize some warnings here based on those views, those errant views of sanctification, some solemn warnings to take to heart in light of this. And remember this, errant understandings of the Christian life, of the pursuit of holiness, no matter how sincere they are, if they're errant, they will hinder your pursuit of Christ-likeness. You cannot just rely on the intensity of your sincerity. It has to do with truth. It has to do with what God has said about the Christian life. I like what Michael Barrett said. Right thinking about the gospel produces right living in the gospel. Now, what are these solemn warnings that I want to leave you with? Number one, quickly, you will distort the Christian life if you disconnect sanctification from justification. You will distort the Christian life if you disconnect sanctification from justification. Now, the problem with all of these views can be traced to a faulty understanding of the relationship between these two doctrines, justification and sanctification. Now, indeed, and we would agree with this wholeheartedly and affirm this and die on this hill, that you cannot collapse the doctrine of sanctification into justification and treat them synonymously. That's the problem of works-based salvation. That's the problem of the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church teaches. That justification and sanctification are essentially the same thing. They are not. They are to be distinguished. But at the same time, and this is important in reference to our session tonight, in the same way you cannot disconnect sanctification 
from justification to suggest that sanctification is either something that occurs at some point many years down the road from your regeneration, from your justification, or is in some way optional for the Christian life. No, justification, the reality of justification leads to, out of necessity, to the process of sanctification. Andrew Nacelli, in his really good book, No Quick Fix, says this, progressive sanctification is distinct from justification, yet inseparable from justification. Faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. God's grace through the power of his spirit ensures that the same faith that justifies a Christian also sanctifies a Christian. Secondly, you will distort the Christian life if you redefine sin and perfection. You will distort the Christian life if you redefine sin and perfection. We must acknowledge this. Sin is not only the willing transgression of a known command. Sin is any failure to conform to the character and the purposes of God, whether you acknowledge it or not. Also, any perfection that is qualified or approximated or any perfection that allows for subsequent failure is no perfection at all. Now, in light of that, consider what Stephen Neal says about these things. He says this, it's, quote, in certain circles, perfection is interpreted as meaning no more than the avoidance of all known or conscious sin. But how far short it falls of an understanding of the depths and realities of our problems. How often we find that we have done wrong without at the time being aware that we are doing it. To go one stage deeper yet, which of us will venture to claim that the motives which impel us to action, and he's not just talking about actions now, but the motives, the motives, motives that compel us to action are always free from an admixture of dross, perhaps unobserved at the time, but painfully evident to us when we have leisure to be completely honest with ourselves. Similarly, B.B. Warfield said this, nothing can be more important than that the concept of perfection be maintained at its height. The habit of conceiving of perfection as admitting of many imperfections, moral imperfections, glossed as infirmities, errors, and inadvertences, not only lowers the standard of perfection, and with it the height of our aspirations, but it corrupts our hearts, dulls our discrimination of right and wrong, and betrays us into satisfaction with attainments which are very far from satisfactory. End quote. The third solemn warning. You will distort the Christian life if you distinguish Jesus' role as Savior from his role as Lord. You will distort the Christian life if you distinguish Jesus' role as Savior from his role as Lord. It's common to hear people state today, as a result of the influence of this higher life theology and Wesleyan perfectionism, it is common to hear people say today, kind of as even a, a template for testimonies, to hear things like this, I accepted Christ as my Savior 
when I was seven years old, but then accepted him as Lord when I was 22. But scripture makes no provision for such a dichotomy. You cannot believe in part of Christ and not all of Christ. You cannot accept part of who he is and reject the rest of who he is. In fact, scripture is very clear about this. The apostle Paul, when describing conversion, states it in this way in Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, let me tell you something. I looked at the Greek. The word for Lord, there is not a mistranslation. It is the word for Lord. It is not the word for Savior. It is the word for Lord. And any kind of conversion that accepts the benefits of Jesus' saviorhood, but rejects his sovereignty is not an authentic kind of salvation, and it will not lead to an authentic kind of sanctification. Number four, you will distort the Christian life if you create two categories of Christians. You will distort the Christian life if you create two categories of Christians. You see, the moment that you create these two categories, the carnal Christian and the spiritual Christian, you do two things. First of all, you negate the necessity of sanctification for the Christian. In other words, the Christian can, can enter this period of carnality and there's no need for sanctification, at least no necessary need. He can survive, he can live, he can dwell, he can remain in that level of carnality and, and, and completely accept the idea that he is a Christian. But not only that, not only do you negate the necessity of sanctification by creating the, the category of the carnal Christian, but number two, you introduce the need for a second conversion. You introduce the need of a, a second work of grace. You introduce, introduce the need for another crisis moment to get that carnal believer into the next stage, which is the stage of the spiritual Christian. Again, Scripture does not recognize either of these ideas. Let me quote from J.C. Ryle. Quote, the word of God always speaks of two great divisions of mankind and two only. It speaks of the living and the dead in sin, the believer and the unbeliever, the converted and the unconverted, the travelers in a narrow way and the travelers in the broad, the wise and the foolish, the children of God and the children of the devil. Within each of these two great classes, there are doubtless various measures of sin and of grace, but is only the difference between the higher and the lower end of an inclined plane. Between these two great classes, there is an enormous gulf. They are as distinct as life and death, light and darkness, heaven and hell. But of a division into three classes, the word of God says nothing at all. Creating the category of the carnal Christian for those who have never repented of sin, for those who have never recognized that Jesus Christ is Lord and confessed him as such, and who have never experienced an ounce of sanctification, creates false assurance. And listen, there are myriads 
of these carnal Christians in churches today who are being affirmed as Christians by those who hold to this view of the carnal Christian. And sadly, they are being given false assurance. This errant understanding of the Christian life causes many problems for the church at large. It creates problems for, the how, for how the church must preach the gospel to the lost. What then is the content of the gospel? Secondly, how the church must counsel believers who struggle. This concept of, of carnality affects biblical counseling. And then thirdly, this, this concept of carnality then confuses the church as to how to practice What Jesus taught about church discipline. How can you treat as unbelievers those who are categorized as carnal Christians? It creates so many unnecessary problems. Number five, you will distort the Christian life if you create multiple tiers of Christianity. This follows very closely on the heels of this fourth solemn warning. You will distort the Christian life if you create multiple tiers of Christianity, multiple levels of Christianity. By abandoning the biblical teaching that the Christian life is, is to be likened to the growth of a body, organic development that is procedural, that is slow, by abandoning that biblical analogy, Proponents of these errant views of sanctification create the need for these crisis moments which transfer the believer from one tier of Christianity to the next. Believers then strive not after the mortification of sin and the the production of Christ-like virtue by the grace and assistance and power of God, but they begin to strive after these crisis experiences. And those crisis experiences are found in things like walking the aisle once again. Reconsecration at some kind of special service. Rededication, etc., etc. And sadly, many believers who have been taught these teachings continue to walk the aisle. Continue to put their life on the altar. Only to realize that this is not the pattern that that results in any significant, true, increasing growth in Christ-likeness. Proponents deceive Christians by promising a silver bullet to the attainment of holiness. They give ten steps to this, or three keys to that, or seven secrets. And a lot of these are drawn from subjective experience and an unsound interpretation of Scripture. And what is the goal? The goal is a quick fix, a quick fix, something to quickly get someone from the level where they're at today to some elevated level of Christianity. Again, Andrew Nacelli says this, that's what I think the higher life theology is, an easy but temporary remedy or solution that fails to address underlying problems. And what is the end? Frustration discouragement, disillusionment, and dependency on this constant cycle of crisis, elevation, lapse, crisis, elevation, lapse, crisis, etc., etc. Martin Lloyd-Jones likened this 
seesaw effect of rededication, lapse, rededication to that of an electric battery, which constantly runs down and has to be recharged by a dynamo. He then goes on to say this, and this is very important. He says, religious meetings and gatherings, he's speaking of those kind of higher life meetings uh, where the call is to rededicate life, to let go and let God and experience this new level of perfection. He says that these religious meetings and gatherings, indeed, in, in general, are invaluable aids to the Christian life. But when we live by them, and become entirely dependent upon them and begin to think that we must wait for them before we can live the Christian life as we ought to live it, they become the very snare of the devil. Number six, you will distort the Christian life if you proclaim a gospel of mere decision and no repentance. When Jesus came, he preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4 verse 17 after the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Paul preached, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Acts 17 verse 30. Such repentance is no more a product of human self-achievement than faith is. This kind of repentance about which Paul preaches and Peter preaches is a gift from God to the same degree that faith is. The, the apostles acknowledged, for example, that after Cornelius' conversion, this is what they say in Acts eleven eighteen: God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It is not a human effort. It is a gift of God. And Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 that the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to life. Number seven, you will distort the Christian life if you reject the path of a lifelong active battle with sin and wait passively for God to do all the work. One person said this about maintaining balance. He said, Satan strikes either at the root of faith or at the root of diligence. Let me read that again. Satan strikes either at the root of faith or at the root of diligence. And that certainly applies to sanctification. Satan will either attack your trust in God, your faith in God, that it is he who provides the strength, he who provides the resources, he who provides the spirit of holiness to you. Satan will attack you there in your faith in that, that it is God who works in you to produce true holiness. Or Satan will attack the root of diligence. That's his other form of attack. To attack that active working that you are responsible for in the process of sanctification. Philippians 2 verses 12 to 13 says, Just as you have always obeyed, not only as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I like what Jay Packer says as he gives an important corrective to the let go and let God theology. He says this, it is not let go and let God, but it is trust God and get going. That is biblical sanctification. Trust God and get going. Let the root of faith sink deeply as you do the root of diligence. 
or as Hokema states, the harder we work with the proper understanding of the gospel and of sanctification, the more sure we may be that God is working in us. Now, finally, number eight, you will distort the Christian life if you elevate experience over doctrine. You will distort the Christian life if you elevate experience over doctrine. And this is perhaps the root of all of these problems. One historian of the Keswick movement said this, Keswick is interested in the practical application of religious truth rather than in doctrinal or dogmatic theology. The convention is not interested in academic discussions of theology and ethics or even in adding to the store of Bible knowledge of those who attend, but simply and only in helping men to be holy, end quote. That is a wrong that is a wrong dichotomy between the pursuit of holiness and growth in the knowledge of the grace of God. And that kind of elevation of experience over doctrine is the, the primary tool that Satan uses to sow all kinds of misunderstanding about the Christian life, and it brings great destruction. Consider, for example, Pelagius, the fourth century theologian who was rightly condemned by the early church as a heretic. Now, not a lot of people know this about Pelagius. Pelagius, who lived 8360 to 8420, was a, a British monk committed to a life of asceticism and who was very concerned about holiness. Pelagius believed that any emphasis on divine sovereignty and grace would undercut human responsibility. And so he responded out of his great concern for holiness in the church. He responded by emphasizing human responsibility to the exclusion of God's sovereignty and salvation. And now the whole Pelagius controversy is a discussion for a different time. The key thing to note is this. Don't expect the heretics to be the ones who are advocating licentiousness. Sometimes the greatest heretics sound very passionate and sincere in their pursuit of morality. And, and, and this is expressed in Pelagius' words as follows. These are his words when he says this, quote, You will realize that doctrines are the invention of the human mind as it tries to penetrate the mystery of God. You will realize that scripture itself is the work of human recording the example and teaching of Jesus. Thus, it is not what you believe in your head that matters. It is how you respond with your heart and your actions. It is not believing in Christ that matters, but becoming like him. End quote. Those are words of Pelagius. And as I read those words, perhaps they sound very familiar in the current milieu of evangelicalism. It is not what you believe, it's how you behave. This leads Jay Packer to state, state it this way. After all, Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in theology. Pelagianism is the natural heresy of zealous Christians who are not interested in, interested in theology, end quote. We need to remember that. 
that our pursuit of holiness must be zealous, but it is only accurate and and properly guided by the truth. You cannot have a pursuit of holiness and an experience of holiness apart from the truth that is given to us in God's word. After all, Jesus himself said this in his prayer to the Father. Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. In that request, Jesus makes known to us that sanctification occurs in the context of God's word. It occurs in the context of doctrine. It occurs in the context of a deepening understanding and an understanding of God's word that grows more and more full and accurate as your life progresses. In fact, the process of Progressive sanctification follows on the heels of your growth, of your understanding of the grace of God revealed in his word. Now, a final challenge. We've talked about these errant views of sanctification, and we could get sidetracked and focused predominantly on those errors, and that would be easy to do. But I want to leave you with one final challenge, and it is this. What is your holiness teaching? At the end of the day, it's not whether we can identify and discern the errors in others. The issue is this. What is your understanding of holiness? What are you doing in your life to mortify sin and pursue Christ's likeness? That is the issue to which you will give an account as you stand before the Lord, as you come into his glory. And let's pray that the Lord would give us a right understanding. Heavenly Father, as we close our session tonight, we do ask that your spirit, using your word, would remove from our understanding all of those incorrect notions of the pursuit of holiness, of the nature of holiness, of the nature of sin and perfection. And as we study the scripture, we pray that your spirit would enlighten us. Give us an understanding of these truths so that we might appreciate your holiness more. We might strive for it more. And then as we hold ourselves up to the standard of your absolute perfection, we would be able to evaluate our lives in light of our direction with reference to it. And we do rest in that prayer of the Apostle Paul, who did look forward to the time of entire sanctification, perfect sanctification, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially in times like this, we do pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Because we know that when he comes, our perfection will be revealed in him. Our glory will will be a reflection of his. We look forward to that day in the name of Jesus Christ and the power of his spirit. Amen.